0: In this episode, we discuss with Adam about three things: Unicomp, Plan 9, and chocolate milk. The emphasis of the discussion is on Plan 9, an operating system that intrigues many in the Unix realm. Plan 9 has a deep two-way relation or connection with Unix, both as being inspired by it and by inspiring it. And we also took the liberty to discuss other topics for the leisure and enjoyment of the listener. And I was surprised by the, by how composed, calm and serious Adam was. From, from my small previous encounter with him, I thought he would be different, but my assumptions were wrong. Don't judge others. He knows his subjects to the core and is truly passionate about them. I've learned quite a lot during this podcast and here we go. I'm vinam and the company of Adam slash APK. And you're listening to the Nixers podcast. So, who's this Adam slash APK guy? Which one you prefer, Adam or APK? Adam, I guess. You know, I don't really have any preference, but Adam's my name. So, why do you switch to APK instead of Adam? Adam.
1: Um, I don't know. I got bored, and I think uh, APK is like a bit more Unixy. You know, like. Dennis Ritchie used DMR, and then, um, well, I guess Ken used Ken, but that's because it's three letters. I don't know. I got bored of Adam, so just. He's day. an
0: infamous or famous forums member that is quite eccentric. He's most noticeable for his true love of Unicomp and Blend Nine, and one day uh, on IRC he even went on Howard's epic storytelling of the Plan Nine history. And you can find the story log and the show notes if it interests you. Let's start with Unicom, which is a mechanical keyboard. And for those who don't know, mechanical keyboards are popular in the computing world in general, and especially with Unix users, as they tend to have more textual interface and spend most of their time typing. There's also a lot of keyboard layouts, and keyboards where they remove many keys, ten key less, ten percent less.
1: Yeah, let's uh how about the unicomp first? I think the unicomp's an easy one to talk about. And not not just the unicomp per se, but what I did with the unicomp, I guess. So
0: From my knowledge, the Unicomp is like this uh not so old company, mm-hmm. but uh like in the nineties and they have this infamous IBM Model M where it has this, this sort of buckling string. Right. Where a sort of tube inside and, and you have the, the the spring uh doing a sort of clicky sound it's sort of like different than the cherry mx mm-hmm. series mm-hmm. so how would you compare it to the cherry mx and uh, what do you have to say about the that unicomp <laughs> yeah well
1: so yeah yeah you got it pretty down pretty well the uh the unicomp is like the mechanical well not necessarily the unicomp but the buckling spring is like the mechanical the mechanical right it's Super loud, super clacky. It uses like an actual metal spring and all the keys, you know, hence the name. And the Cherry keys, the Cherry switches are a little bit more sophisticated. They're designed specifically for a certain type of tactile response and audio, like, you know, audible feedback while the the buckling spring is sort of this like raw key switch that was like used way back in the day. And so the Unicomp, it's sort of like an emulation of the Model M,
0: the IBM Model M, which is a legendary
1: mechanical keyboard in the community.
0: So it does feel that ama- amazing, that phenomenal when you click it. Mm-hmm. Or, I mean, you, you have other mechanical keyboards. How would you compare the feel? Yeah. Is it like between the uh, red and, and uh, blue or between uh, transparent or white keycaps? I don't know. Mm-hmm.
1: I would probably, if we're talking about like comparison between Cherry and the, the buckling spring I'd, I'd have to go with uh, with green
0: switches, cherry has green
1: switches which are I think I think if I remember correctly the green switch is the uh, like the latest switch that cherry manufactures and it's also the one that requires the more the most force to get to the actuation point because the buckling spring i mean you gotta have it takes some strength it takes some stamina to use the buckling spring board. it's not easy to push down on um it's not quiet so the
0: cherry the screen and i actually have a green board do you feel like uh you're uh splitting in half the spring or something like it's a very <laughs> a very hard pressure and i don't know uh yeah so the spring
1: so the, the the way it works inside is uh the spring gets pressed it's a spring so it gets it gets compacted down and then it kind of works a little bit like a cherry and there's a little piece of plastic with like a hook on it or so and uh i guess there's i guess it's more like two now i think about it in the buckling spring and so this so the spring gets pushed down kind of you know tilted a bit depending on the key switch, like the uh, the uh, the letters and the numbers are smaller than the space bar and whatnot. And so they'll sound a bit different, but uh, in general, it does take a lot of strength to uh, push down. I mean, it's just a key switch. It doesn't take like noticeable strength. But if you're doing like rubber dome typing and you switch to a buckling spring, you're going to notice some serious difference in actuation point and audio feedback and like that.
0: Do they still uh, manufacture them?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The Unicomp. I mean, the whole point, I think, behind the Unicomp is just sort of like the revival of the buckling spring keyboard. You know, because uh, they, they're kind of they're kind of hard to come across these days. If you're finding a buckling spring which's not a Unicomp, it's probably some like old, old, thirty-year-old IBM. You know, bulky board from the eighties or so. So I got it. I got it on sale actually a while ago. It was about a hundred dollars or so.
0: <laughs> pretty expensive, but most of them are. Well, $100 is not that expensive for a mechanical keyboard. I think you would agree. I would agree with that. I would, but I think,
1: you know, a lot of people, like when they first get into keyboards, they see the price tags on some of them, and they just kind of like their jaws drop, you know, like how could a keyboard be as much? Um, Compared to the cheap ones you have on the, or any big (laughs) one. Yeah, the OEM, like HP Dell keyboards, which are like, you know, 20 bucks or so. And uh, I think you remember very well what I did as a result of purchasing that keyboard. I, uh, <laughs> Well, I was spamming the forums about it. Uh, you did. <laughs> yeah.
0: But I, I still, I did leave like two threads on the forum because you were happy with them. I think. <laughs> right, yeah. I did dedicate a few
1: threads just for the Unicop and if i remember correctly that that resulted in me getting banned from for like a week or so by you because all i do was just just post stupid shit all over the forum but
0: uh yeah i love new oh, man. it's a good keyboard okay so now back on the unix topic does it have any relation here the sort of ibm model m mm-hmm. with unix directly like was it used on pdp one <laughs> i think not because it's too no. new yeah that's not that old it's not that old uh it was probably
1: probably more towards the 80s so during the time where uh, glass terminals were were this were the norm and uh of course in the 80s we did see you know um the start of uh monochrome displays and even color displays in the mid 80s um the ibm model piece the idea model m i don't have a lot of knowledge on it myself um it was seemed to be fairly standard with uh with uh, like high-end computer users, you know, people who did computing for a living. Um, although although back in the 80s, you know, back in that day when you had, you know, like serial ports and you had the terminal connecting to a mainframe, you had really the terminal was sort of like connected to the keyboard, you know, in most cases, like a lot of deck terminals and things like that. The terminal and the keyboard were kind of all one big unit, you know. And then uh, when the personal computer came along, that's when you saw like the keyboard being split up. With the monitor and then you have the actual computer, you know, a mouse, depending on what, key, what computer you got.
0: I think What's it a... did make sense to have it in one unit because mm-hmm. the terminal was the endpoint of the CPU because the CPU was somewhere else. It was the processing unit somewhere else and you just had the thin client, the yeah. the end output. And then came the personal computer with the peripherals and right. you can plug stuff around. And then uh, it came came to, to be... Uh, unplug from the main machine right right yeah okay so yeah you have anything to add for the unicomp (laughs) obviously you have phrases and uh... oh yes it's a good keyboard yeah if you can get your hands on
1: one even if you can just like touch one just give it a shot because buckling springs are a different beast compared to this cherry switches and alps and topers and whatnot
0: that was a deep passionate view on Unicomp keyboards so Unicomp are really distinct by the buckling string and historically go along with the professional computing on terminals and the advent of personal computing. They have their place more or less in the Unix history. Now let's touch another topic that surrounds and embraces Unix Plan 9. Let's go for the discussion with our favorite Plan 9 expert. Let's move on to your favorite. Topic Plan 9. <laughs> plan 9. Okay, so I don't know that much about Plan 9. I did my research this week and I, mm. I did try it a bit on a friend's machine, a mm. virtual machine, not really full install on the on the hardware itself, because from what I know it's it doesn't have really that big of a support for hardware. Right. Anyway, from what I know, it was made by the same people that were working on Unix. It was inspired by Unix, but it's not Unix. It's just inspired by it. So it's done from scratch, totally Mm -hmm. from scratch with ideas from the people who were working on Unix. Right. For 20 years working on Unix and then using those operating system uh, knowledge to Build something completely new. They took those ideas and still integrated some tools that are Unix-like, but they re them from scratch. They took the concept of pipe mm-hmm. uh, over and over again. There is no root. There is per-process namespace, per-process mm-hmm. per-user access. There is something. Uh, there is total integration with the network and a lot, a lot of uh, cool stuff like Unicode yeah and it yeah, has yeah. a built-in graphical environment etc cetera, etc cetera. so that's really a big general generic overview of the thing and i'm not really knowledgeable about the little uh, details mm-hmm. but uh what would be like for someone who knows linux or bsd or Solaris or the newest uh, kind of Unix, what would be your definition, like in two sentences or one sentence about plan nine? Like you would explain to them what's plan nine?
1: If I had to describe plan nine in one sentence or a couple
0: sentences, I would say, first
1: I would say everything's a file. Like everything is a file. Everything is a file. If you think like it's not a file, you're probably wrong. And the second thing would be, it is the true successor to Unix. Nowadays, you know, it's probably the most obscure thing out there, operating system wise. But, you know, historically speaking, it, it was the successor to Unix. It was supposed to be, for all intents and purposes, Unix version 2.0. So, yeah, I would probably I have to summarize it with those two sentences everything's a file, and it's a true successor
0: to Unix. Okay, let's dig on that point that everything is a file. Uh, from what I know, they have something that is called a union directories and then namespace. Mm-hmm and they don't have really a difference between local machine and remote machines. Right. Uh, how, how does that happen? What do you know on that level? Did, yeah. you, did you try it? Did you do a network or mm-hmm. did, or you just... Uh, what do you know about it?
1: Yeah, sure, yeah. Um, a couple of years ago, <coughs> I actually managed to get a, a small cluster of uh, Plan 9 machines working. I, uh, I had about three or four uh, Anovo Sieg centers. Um, they're like really small desktop PCs, I had a, I, I would never them all using Ethernet. I installed the base distribution of Plan 9, the one that came out of Bell Labs. I installed it on all of those. And, um, I wasn't really trying to like do anything practical with it. You know, I was just trying to learn how to network the, the machines together. Cause, uh, it was, it was built. The system was built to be used on not just one machine, but multiple machines over a network. And, uh, so what I did was I assigned different roles to different servers. And in Plan 9, there's like, if I remember correctly, I think there's, uh, there's, three different types of servers you can have no i guess four technically you have a cpu server which does a lot of like the computation and processing you have an authentication server which authenticates the users and services um, on the cluster you have your kind of like hard drive storage server which like has a bulk hard drive space and then you finally have all your terminals your small thin clients um connecting to those machines um, and the system was designed in a way that would allow the user to access all the resources from the CPU server and the hard drive server, the storage server and authentication server. And they presented to them in a way that made it seem like all those resources were on the same machine. And that was multiplexed to all the terminals on the network. So every single user would have the same kind of resource pool to pull from. Um, so I did that with about three or four IBM. Uh, or not IBM, Lenovo uh, ThinkCenters. It was a pretty, you know, crappy design on my part because the computers are bad, but I did get to like in my hands dirty with it and whatnot. It was pretty cool. Yeah, so from a high level, yeah, from high level. That's Yeah, from a high level
0: that's the networking part of it, yeah. Okay, so uh, you said there's a, you can assign to a machine like the CPU role and uh, mm-hmm. the storage role, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, from what I know, uh, there's no root user on uh, Plan9. Right. completely renewed the the concept of uh, access control Mm -hmm. they use a a a communication protocol called 9p instead of bsd sockets or Mm -hmm. sockets Mm -hmm. so does this have a relation with uh, like inside the 9p protocol uh, they have authentication to know which one should access how does the access control that really happen like yeah you have the only way to communicate between stuff is with the 9p call and you don't you don't have any root user, right? so there should be some authentication inside the the packets or something.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and uh, so 9P,
1: 9P, I call it, this might be its like technical definition, but this is what I call it. I call it a, a, a ubiquitous network transparent protocol, which is to say that it's a protocol that's used practically everywhere in the system, from authentication to connecting to services to accessing resources, and it's network transparent, and that it can use, you know, TCP, it can use UDP, it can use op- application layer protocols. You use all these different things, but it still uses the same interface. So when you do, when you use 9P, you could be using it with a server around the, like somewhere across the world, or it could be in the same building, or it could be the same machine. 9, 9P doesn't really care that much, you know, it's just it's designed to be transparent in that regard. So on the topic of authentication and the absence of a root user, there are actually, there is an account, I think it's called the host owner, which is uh, given on every machine. So the CPU server will have a host owner and the storage server will have a host um, owner and if anything else, it'll have a host owner. And it's not necessarily a root account, it's host owner, but it's an account that's really used for maintenance stuff. You can use the host owner to to add, hardware devices, you know, upgrade hard, upgrading hardware, you can use it to uh manage some services on the system. Cuz when you're in, when you're in a when you're in a network where there's no like administrator user, you're still going to need to use some kind of privileged account to do some certain task. That's just kind of something you can't avoid. But with that said, the host owner account it's still pretty limited, and it's uh, privileges. Uh, Bell Labs did do a pretty good job of making the system work really well without a root account. Root account, and authentication wise, it's a tough subject to talk about, in my opinion. Um, authentication on Plan Nine is really a a, a exotic thing. Um, and, and in fact, they didn't actually implement a uh, robust. Uh, authentication process until about like the fourth edition or so they uh wrote this thing called factotum which is the uh for all intents and purposes it's the authentication protocol for the system um in fact uses a really interesting design and the way it works just kind of fascinates me i i haven't used it as much as i'd like to uh i remember a few months ago i hosted a uh a nine front Uh, server nine fronts a a fork of plan nine a derivative of plan nine i wrote it i wrote i wrote it i ran it on a uh, virtual private server and a bunch of Nixers guys connected to it and they messed around with it and uh that was kind of my dive into Factotum because i needed to use factota to authenticate everybody in the case where i had my small cluster of think centers i was the only person using it so authentication was not really a priority for me but with the vps running nine front when i had multiple people that's where Factotum came into play and that's where i really got to understand um at least from an interface perspective how it works and what it is so uh yeah generally speaking authentication plan nine wasn't really a primary goal until later on and uh in fact, Totem is really a fascinating piece of software.
0: It's confusing, but it's pretty cool. Yeah. So, talking about those exotic things, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, do you think there's something like that that was inspired, like really directly inspired by the Unix, uh, by cool. some cool. Unix tools? But that was like a superset of it. I think it was uh, they took uh, piping
1: mm-hmm.
0: and they made something called Plumber. But Plumber right. is pretty new, I think. Yeah. So, do you think it's a superset of it? <clears throat> Cause it's made by the same people. Yeah. They,
1: uh, yeah, they definitely use some concepts from, uh, from research Unix. Um, plumber is a good example, like you said. So the plumber, uh, is an in interprocess process communication mechanism, uh, where you can send text over a, uh, I guess you can call it a pipe. You send text to plumber, and uh, depending on what kind of text it is, the plumber could parse it and understand uh, where it needs to go or, or what what you're trying to say with it. Like I could uh, I could plumb a string of numbers or a string of numbers and characters that follows a certain like regular expression, and an uh, application will open as a result. So I think I think a good example is uh, Acme. Acme is the uh, Plan Nine, one of the Plan Nine text editors, written by uh, Rob Pike. So I could send like a string of text from a uh, from a const from a terminal, it could have like a file name and then a number line and just plumb that as is in plan nine, or I guess the plumber would be smart enough to know that that's a file that needs to be opened. And so what it would do is it would open up Acme with that file already opened and it would highlight the line that was inside the uh, string of text uh, that you plumb to it. Um, so I think that's a good solid example of what the plumber is. And and, and in fact, actually, uh, there were a lot of user land applications that were directly ported to plan nine. You know, you still, you still have things like cat, and LS, and uh, PS, and um, some simple programs like that. Some of them were ported directly to Plan 9C, while others were rewritten in RC, and RC is the scripting language used for Plan 9, and is also the uh, the shell used for the uh, terminals. So, uh, yeah, it's pretty easy to, to notice some some principles used in traditional Unix with Plan 9, which makes a lot of sense, you know, because it came from the same guys, but they uh, they definitely revisited a lot of things with Plan 9 in that regard.
0: So, uh, I think I've saw, but I'm not sure of it, I'm really not sure of it, but I think they're using another C dialect. Mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm.
0: Can you confirm that? Yes, yeah, they use their own dialect of C, yeah. Okay, so uh, there's something uh, that I was surprised at first, but uh, Plan 9 is graphic-oriented, and there's a guy called Eric Raymond, I think you know it, from the uh, Art of Unix Programming, and he says that one of the things very specific to a Unix system is that it's first based on text, Mm-hmm. And then the layer above comes uh, with graphics or whatever fancy uh, overlay you want to add to it. Right. But uh, Plan 9 comes like graphical first. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Do, do you think it was a, a good choice to go for that? or uh, Because it's made by the same people who did Unix, so probably did it for a good reason. Yeah. 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 And, uh, that, the graphics discussion, I think one thing we need to look at with that
1: is, uh, the, the, the time period, um, that plan I was developed in, you know, uh, the initial development started in the uh, late eighties, um, time period. So we're looking at like, you know, uh, operating systems like windows and, uh, early versions of mac os well i guess i guess in the early 80s and not the early 80s late 80s windows wasn't a whole os it was just a was just a program for dos but um anyways so we had graphic user interfaces coming to uh home pcs personal pcs uh we also saw networking uh take a huge influence over over that so yeah i think they i I mean i think they were you know they were correct in making uh graphics a a integral part of the system you know and sometimes there's really need to be said about the, the the unix guys you know basically taking a stance on Graphics and kind of showing the world what they think they should be because they did a pretty good job. I mean, the interface to Plan 9 graphics wise is as usual exotic because Plan 9 is just a very strange operating system, uh, bluntly put. The way they did graphics in comparison to operating systems like Mac OS and Windows and even Unix desktops like uh CDE and X11 window managers like TWM and, and whatnot. Uh, the way Plan Nine did it was just so much more simple, in my opinion. Um, not just from an inter- interface standpoint, like the user interface, but also the, uh, the the software used to to show that graphical experience was uh, was really quite a feat. Um, yeah, eight That's and a cool half was one of the uh, window man. Well, actually, eight and a half was initially written for uh, Unix by Ralph Pike, and then they kind of worked on that more and uh, wrote Rio which is the current window manager for Plan 9. But yeah, 8.5 was sort of a precursor to what would be the graphical user interface for Plan 9. And you can see that with photos of 8.5 in Rio. 8.5 was written for monochrome displays. Um, And then once bitmap displays came out of the picture, that's when they added color and Rio had support for that and a few other things as well. But yeah, 8.5 was a precursor to the interface.
0: I think the novelty behind it comes from the fact that Rob Pike did write uh, the graphical environment, the mm-hmm. graphical server, before X11 and before any of the big, big uh, like graphical environment was was still something new. So he wasn't biased. He wasn't right. copying something else. He did his own thing, his own concept. Yeah, yeah. He uh,
1: in the early 80s, 1982 or so, he um, created the Blit terminal which used a graphical interface. And uh, even that from 1982, and Plan 9 development that started until six or seven years after 82, you still see, with the Blit you can still see Plan 9 in it. Um, it was used on Unix, obviously, but uh, yeah, Rob Pike, he had that idea for a long time, that whole user interface, graphic user interface. He had that idea for a long time.
0: Let's move to a section like how Plan 9 affected opera- other operating system, how what it did really uh, inspired others. Hmm. So, or how it did take it to another step. Like, for example, the minimalism philosophy. Yeah. Just without Unix, just minimalism itself. Uh, Instead of having like other operating systems and the thousands of system calls, Plan 9 has only 51 system calls. Right, yeah, yeah. Which is really (laughs) impressive. When I did the research on system calls for one of the podcasts, I was reading them and like for Plan 9, it's just, headers and <laughs> numbers and that's it yeah yeah. that's about minimalism but there are stuff like the uh, really uh, other operating system completely copied and they took from plan uh, mm-hmm. 9 itself Definitely. like the okay. slash <laughs> proc directory right, right. Uh, the union file system and sort of like docker the the software docker like mm-hmm. you do uh, utf-8 itself it's a uh, standard nowadays network file systems to Anyway, what do you have to say about like the inspiration for other operating systems? Uh, there's someone that says that sooner or later, Plan 9 cannot reach the point where it's going to be popular, but sooner, or, sooner or later, other operating systems are going to try to uh, incorporate some function that Plan 9 already does, so it could somehow get inside or merge with some other operating system. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. A lot of these to be said in that regard. Uh... I think I think two of the largest uh, things you need to look at with that are our uh, utf like you said, and the uh, proc file system, uh, both of which originated in Plan Nine. And and in fact, uh, Rob Pike, well, Ken Thompson created Unicode. Uh, Rob Pike was with him. I, I I don't know why I remember this so vivid, like the whole story so vividly, but I do. I think it's pretty cool. Um, you know, Ken Ken Thompson, who worked on the original Unix with Dennis Ritchie in the late sixties and early seventies, uh, Ken was with Rob Pike in a in a diner, just some random diner somewhere, I think. And Ken managed to write down what Unicode was in the back of like a placemat or a napkin or something. And uh, its its design, it was just so so sophisticated yet simple. And I think as computer scientists and uh, programmers, you know, we need to follow that kind of philosophy with everything we do. And Plan 9 definitely did that. And so UTF-8 was uh, was a lot of things. Actually, it was backwards compatible with ASCII, which was a huge deal because you didn't have to do anything else. Like if you had a string of ASCII text, ASCII could just be used without any extra effort at all. UTF-8 could use ASCII and that was that. Another thing was it used a um, bit, the, the, the stream was uh, uh, the number of bytes that you could use for a character was arbitrary, which means that you didn't have a fixed number of bytes to work with. So when you're sending bytes over the over the wire, over a network, UTF-8 was able to uh, to know how many bytes it was expecting for a certain character, um, and then read those bytes um, as they were. And so, when you're dealing with a lot of languages, that's a big deal because you know you have different sections of bytes for different languages, and then actually six different sections of bits as well. Actually, uh, so for UTF-8 to be able to do that um, at the time was pretty impressive. Nowadays, we kind of take that kind of thing for granted. But when you had uh, when when networking was a little bit more expensive back in those days, being able to know exactly what you're expecting. Um, as it's going over the wire was pretty cool, And so u was uh, was uh, was quite quite an accomplishment on their part, um, and and uh, to go on with that a little bit more, um, the time period as well. When you're dealing with a lot of locales like. ASCII or ISO 8859 or you know some Japanese or or, or, or French or, or German or whatever it might be whatever language it might be having having a having an encoding that's capable of expressing tons of languages and, and, and even have enough room to show, like you know emoticons and you know things like that uh, is, is amazing because you could have files that are in UTF 8, you know they can express different languages effortlessly, right? Uh, If you're doing like encoding A to encoding B, you might get a lot of weird symbols and stuff because the codings are different. But if you have a standard encoding for all languages, that's good because the file could be in that encoding applications can use that. And we're all kind of on the same page in that regard. And so UTFA was great. And that was obviously taken by other operating systems and the web as well uses a lot, you know, Unicode's Unicode's huge on the web and in the proc file system kind of, kind kind of changing subjects that originated out of plan nine. And, um, the proc file system exposes processes at a file system level, you know, kind of it's the name. Uh, so you can you can view things. For IPC. Like, uh, right, yeah, 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 you can use it for IPC. Yeah, and you can use it, I think another good uh, use of it is uh, debugging as well, debugging applications. But being able to view, you know, the memory it's using, um, what it's accessing, things like that, are pretty cool. And proc is used directly in Linux and some of the BSDs. I don't think OpenBSD uses it, but I think FreeBSD uses FreeBSD, yeah. it. Free BSD, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh so so the Proc file system is, is is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, the profile is pretty cool. And I think uh that relates back to everything as a file. On Plan 9, like I said before, everything everything is a file, you know, to uh to TCP packets, to the mouse, to the keyboard, to the monitor. To other hardware devices, um, sockets again, processes, Acme Windows, or files—it's—it's it, it, really—it's really cool. And uh, the proc file system is a good example of that everything is a file philosophy that Plan Nine implemented so well. Union mounts, but well, I think the purpose behind union mounts in Plan Nine was to kind of get rid of uh, environment variables, uh, specifically path and those related environment variables. So you could have you know slash bin the slash bin directory, and you could mount other directories on the slash bin, right? So plan nine, they like to uh, divide their binaries up by uh, um, architect, as well as even in some cases, language. So on plan nine, you might have like slash 386 slash bin, which are all binaries used on 386 machines. And so you can
0: mount that to slash bin and you'd have like 386 binaries. You can have like... So that binaries are shared also across the network. So you have one machine that's role is only to serve binaries. You can have that. Yeah, that's a possibility. Yeah,
1: and uh, the the reason they they took a they took a they uh, made an effort to make sure that like the, the architecture of binaries was taken note of was because Plan Nine was an operating system that, that operating system that could be used on several different architectures. Right, it's a it's a uh, architecture agnostic kind of system. Um, you could run a Spark binary on a three eighty six. And that would work perfectly fine because of the way it was um, designed. And you could mount all those binary directories on the slash bin and you could even use, uh, you can mount them like before or after other directories. So you could like say, if I have two versions of the same program and I want to use a specific one, I could use mount to, you know, put that specific one before the one I, the one that might already be mounted or would mounted later on. And uh, that's used uh, in other places as well. And in fact, mounting in that that sense, it's pretty integral to Plan Nine. You're always mounting stuff on Plan Nine because in Plan Nine, not only is everything a file, but almost
0: everything's a file system as well. What surprised me on that topic of Union file system is that nowadays people are like mesmerized at uh, at this at this concept mm-hmm. of, uh, especially when it's on distributed computing and containers. And I really, it's a real situation that happened. I had a friend come come to me, and and he was. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Docker invented Union File systems. <laughs> and then I, I, when when I when I heard about Plan 9 and I checked that, I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> everyone is is uh, so su- surprised or so uh, uh, fantasizing about yeah. Uh, yeah. containers when, in fact, uh, distributed computing and Union File System, all, the solution was there all along. Yeah, it's been here for a while. So, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. <laughs> It's really inspiring new software. So, yeah, yeah, Unify
1: systems. Well, actually,
0: you brought up Docker. I, I, I think
1: uh, a cool comparison to be made with Docker. So, Docker, um, yeah, is it, it contains uh, you know programs, so you can roll up a Docker container, which could run like a distro or whatever. I don't know much about Docker. I just kind of understand it vaguely. But uh, terminals um, on Plan Nine are kind of like that, kind of like Docker. They're they're sort of like containers, you know. So when you open up two terminals, the terminal has its own overview of the network, um, which is to say it has its own overview of the machine. And so you can mount, let's see, you, you can mount, like, I don't know, you could mount, say, a network card from a different machine onto one terminal, and the other terminal would have no idea. So you could not access that card with the other terminal. And so there's sort of a sense of uh, isolation in that regard, which Docker does a good thing, which does this well, does isolation well, because it contains... Software. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. You could say uh, Docker has maybe not directly, but definitely indirectly taken a lot of things from Plan
0: 9. I don't think we can add anything here because uh, we'll confuse everyone. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, let's just talk about the mascot or maybe oh, not. yeah. <laughs> we can do that. So, Linda, yeah, I got, I got, this. or the name, the name itself. Uh, plan 9? Plan 9. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, Plan 9,
1: the, the name of the original distribution is called Plan 9 for Bell Labs. And uh, that's a jab at this terrible movie called plan nine from outer space and uh so the developers the unix guys the unix guys at bell labs who were designing it i don't know why they chose that specific movie to name their operating system after but they did maybe because it was so bad i don't know but yeah the story behind that is pretty simple it's just plan nine from outer space i think honestly i think that movie is kind of regarded as like the worst movie ever created like ever and so for some reason they named their operating system after that and it's just kind of it's kind of ironic in my opinion because I think Plan 9 is like a work of art, really. You know, it's a, it's a flawless example of computer science principles. And it's a great implementation of specific concepts. But it's named after a terrible movie. You know, so it's just kind of funny, I guess. Glenda. Glenda's the bunny. Uh, the mascot. I Glenn
0: so. or Glenda. The Glenda. movie, Also from the same uh, uh, scenerist as uh, Plan 9 from outer space. Oh, is it really? Oh, I didn't know that. I guess it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it?
1: <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So Glenda's the bunny. Glenda was drawn by uh, Rob Pike's wife, who also, I'm pretty sure, also designed the color scheme. I don't I don't know like if he knows it very well, but the, the color scheme, I think Rob Pike commented on the color scheme a couple times and they paid a, a lot of detail to the colors used. They're they're bright colors, you know, but they're also very kind of calm colors. There's not a lot of contrasting going on. Rio used on a bitmap display isn't isn't Uh, 24-bit color there's there's a photo actually if you go on the website just go on the planet website there's actually a photo a screenshot of it of a desktop that shows the colors pretty well um but yeah there's like hints of blue and hints of yellow and and so she drew she designed the color scheme she designed glinda as well the bunny rabbit
0: well that's interesting to have Mm -hmm. the person who designed the mascot design also the color scheme for the operating system yeah yeah Actually, that's quite weird because uh, you don't have the same flexibility for window managers on Plan 9. You're forced to have r- real mm-hmm. because you you don't have anything else. Right. Anyway, uh, let's finish on something. Let's finish about Plan 9 on something uh, more Unix-like. Uh, Eric Raymond has in his book like a section for Plan 9, and it's mm-hmm. a book about Unix programming. Yeah. And he describes it, the title of the chapter is Plan 9, the way the future was. And the first sentence is, we know what Unix's future used to look like. It was designed by the research group at Bell Labs that built Unix and called Plan 9 from Bell's lab. Plan Mm -hmm. 9 was an attempt to do Unix over again better. Mainly, it was an attempt, but it's still an ongoing attempt, more or less. We don't know if it's going to take over one day, but (laughs) other people are taking from Plan 9, that's for sure. So anything to add as an end note for Plan 9? Yeah. um, Just try it, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah,
1: definitely give it a shot.
0: Eric Ramond,
1: Eric S. Ramond, I think he also had a comment about that. Uh, I think he said, when it came to Plan 9, Unix was just good enough you know, even even then it was just good enough. Uh, it was, I think he said they were like...
0: Yeah, if you have a working system already running and it's right. good enough, yeah. why change it? Exactly, yeah. And, you know, even if
1: Plan 9 did stuff better, Unix was already there and it was being, by then it was used for about 20 years or so when Plan 9 came out. And um, I think something has to be said about that when people are developing new systems and new answers to, to questions and software. Um, I, think, I think one of the worst things that could happen is the current solution is just good enough for everyone else, and that would defeat the purpose of a new of a new solution. But yeah, so even if Plan Nine didn't really take off the way it could have, like you said, we do see a lot of examples of it in current operating systems today.
0: That was a fairly long talk about Plan Nine. Now, what's to take out of this talk and Unix-related Plan Nine? is inspired by Unix and it inspires Unix. Okay, so that's what is to remember out of this talk, the conclusion. Now let's move to chocolate milk. What's that? What wait, what Adam? Why do you like it so much? (laughs) Yeah, why do you like it so much? (laughs) Oh god it's so
1: tasty man. I love chocolate actually, funnily enough I I can't stand white milk. I can't stand just regular milk. I I, I taste even like the slightest bit, and I get like sick for some reason. But chocolate milk, I could just drink that for the rest of my life and be fine. Uh, I don't know why I like it so much. I I mean, we kind of all have our our favorite drink, and I guess I might like chocolate milk a bit more. Um, As a matter of fact, I just picked up some more today at the grocery store, and I was drinking some before we started this podcast. (laughs) I don't know, man. I, all I do all day is sit <laughs> on the computer and drink chocolate milk.
0: I think some some day there was Rock X and uh, he posted that uh, GIF, I think GIF image where someone pours all his chocolate milk into <laughs> the sink, <laughs> and you were like,
1: "That's a torture." Yeah. Oh man. He he does, He gives me. He likes to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> and actually, whenever he draws a photo of me, because he's a he's a great artist, and so every now and then I'll ask him to like just draw some like draw some kind of picture of me and. He always adds chocolate milk in it somewhere. Chocolate milk and Plan Nine. He always adds chocolate milk and Plan Nine to it. But yeah. yeah, he
0: needs to do more of those. <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah. So this is everything for this episode about Unicom, Plan Nine. And chocolate milk. And here are some info if you want to contact Adam slash APK.
1: I'm starting to get back on the uh, IRC server. Um I'm on it right now actually. Uh so I'll be on there I think more frequently now. I'm just APK on the IRC server. Um I do have an email address. I kinda I have this weird thing where I change it like every every month or so. But my my Gmail, which I use a lot and have used in the past, is adam my first name adam and then the baron so adam the baron at gmail.com so if you have any questions about plan nine or chocolate milk hit me up dude I'll answer or it. unicomp or unicomp yeah or anything in between i love i love talking on email so don't be don't be scared <laughs>
0: So let's move to the section where we talk about what we did this week and last week. Let's start with a little review of last week. Last week's podcast was about the booting process on Unix, and I dealt with the really generic overview of what happens at every level, and why is it really related to Unix, and why it's important to understand all those parts for debugging, and uh, the differences between all the... Uh, new west unix like distributions so that was it this week what did i do this week this week i didn't do much so i i don't think i'll uh, spend too much time talking about that now this was it this was it if you want to contribute as usual uh, As usual, if you like what you're listening to, you can contribute in multiple ways. The first easy way is to just give your appreciation on IRC or on the forum's extended podcast threads. It uh, gives us a push to know we're going in the right direction. The second way to contribute is by adding some relevant information on those extended threads. A fourth way would be to help me fill the transcript on some episodes that are missing some. And the last way would be to join me on the podcast and you can do that by asking for a podcast key on IRC or on the forums. And with that key, you can log into the user interface on podcast.nixers.net. And on this interface, you set your available time for the next week and then the best time, the best common time is chosen and you can join at that time. And remember that you can find all the episodes on this little short link podcast.nixers.net slash what W-H-A-T or you can check the feed URL that I just mentioned podcast.nixers.net slash F-E-E-D podcast.nixers.net slash feed so this is it thank you very 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 much for listening and have a wonderful day this was Venom for the Nixers podcast